Trail 15. What does the Bible say about sex and marriage? Genesis 2, 23 through 24. The man said, This is now bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman, for she was taken out of man. That is why a man leaves his father and mother and is united to his wife, and they become one flesh. 1 Corinthians 6, 18 through 20. Flee from sexual immorality. All other sins a person commits are outside the body, but whoever sins sexually sins against their own body. Do you not know that your bodies are temples of the Holy Spirit who is in you, whom you have received from God? You are not your own. You were bought at a price. Therefore, honor God with your bodies. One of the most fun things I get to do as a pastor is to stand next to a nerve-ridden groom on his wedding day and watch his eyes fall upon his bride for the first time in her wedding dress. The look on the groom's face is always priceless. It is this odd magical mixture of awe at the beauty of his bride and fear of making a decision that will forever change the rest of his life. I wish there was a way to capture that look on the face from my perspective for others to see. Maybe I could wear a GoPro. I'm sure the couple wouldn't mind. Relationships are a big deal, aren't they? If you are in one, you know just how much work they are. And if you are single, you know just how lonely and difficult it can be to not be in one. Relationships are a major function of the way God designed us. In Genesis 2, the author Moses tells us that God created man first and looked for a suitable helper for him because no other creature provided the type of companionship he needed. God decided to put Adam, the first man, to sleep took a rib out of his side and created the first woman, Eve. Have you ever wondered where the expression, you were a pain in my side, came from? Okay, I may have no proof that's where it got started, but it is funny. What does the Genesis story tell us about ourselves? It tells us that we were designed to be in relationship with each other. We were designed to need one another. Genesis 1, 26 through 27 says, Then God said, Let us make mankind in our image, in our likeness, so that they may rule over the fish in the sea and the birds in the sky, over the livestock and over the wild animals, and over all the creatures that move along the ground. So God created mankind in his own image. In the image of God, he created them. Male and female, he created them. I want you to notice something. When God created Adam and Eve, he created the unit in his image. So God created mankind in his own image. Part of the reason we are not complete on our own is that we are only half of the image of God as an individual. You're missing the other half of the image that God intended to fulfill us. Each one, male and female, are bearers of the image of God in themselves, and together they complete his image. This is a big deal with big implications. For those of you who are single, this explains why you feel such an intense desire to not be alone, to have someone in your life. For those who are married, this explains why we can sometimes get our relationship with our spouse out of balance and expect them to provide value and security for us that is God's alone to give. We look to God's image bearer in the world, our spouse, rather than God himself to provide those needs. If it is the case that you were created for relationships and those relationships complete the image of God, then what does this mean for married folks? How are you to conduct your marriage in a way that honors God? What about the single? Does this mean God has forsaken you or you are not at your best? Of course not. Let me take these questions as they come and try to give the best answer I can to help you understand how to begin to think about these two positions in life as a Christ follower and the potential spiritual benefits of each. Christian marriage. 
Learning to be married is one of the most difficult things I have ever undertaken. When we were first married, I took it upon myself to make sure my wife knew the very best way of doing things. For instance, she had no clue how to load a dishwasher properly. She thought if all the dishes were loaded in the dishwasher, the job was complete. Oh no, my friend, this is as far from the truth as it could possibly be. But how could she, my poor new wife, know there was a system for loading dishes her amazing, talented husband had developed over the years of experienced loading dishes? Enter Kent, the dishwasher king. In as much arrogance and smugness as I could muster, I would walk over and say, Here, Jenny, let me show you how the Kent's patented technique for loading the dishwasher works. I would then work my magic as I adjusted the dishes and moved them around into the perfect configuration, a veritable dishwashing symphony. The sad part about this story is it is 100% true. My wife still loves to dig me about it. Kent's patented technique, huh? For various activities, ironing, dishes, vacuuming, etc. I was arrogant at best. And at worst, well, I don't, I don't even want to explore adjectives for my behavior. I was not being the kind of man God expected me to be in my relationship. Maybe you have struggled and are wondering what your role is to look like now that you are a Christ follower or getting more serious about your relationship with Christ. In the book of Ephesians, the apostle Paul says this, Ephesians 5, 21 through 33, submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. Wives, submit yourselves to your own husbands as you do to the Lord. For the husband is the head of the wife as Christ is the head of the church, his body of which he is the Savior. Now, as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit to their husbands in everything. Husbands, love your wives just as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her, to make her holy, cleansing her by the washing with water through the word, and to present her to himself as a radiant church without stain or wrinkle or any other blemish, but holy and blameless. In this way, husbands ought to love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself. After all, no one ever hated his own body but they feed and they care for their body just as Christ does the church for we are members of his body. For this reason, a man will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife and the two will become one flesh. This is a profound mystery, but I am talking about Christ and the church. However, each one of you must also love his wife as he loves himself and the wife must respect her husband. Paul makes some hard-to-swallow statements on both sides of the aisle. The wife is supposed to submit to her husband? Women, how does that sit with you? What does it mean to submit? Men, you are to love your wife like Christ loved the church. Do you know how he loved the church? He died for the church. Do you love your wife in such a profound way? These are difficult questions. I will try to answer them as succinctly as I possibly can with real examples. Ladies, your husband is not always going to be right, but your role in the relationship is not to force your way. Rather, your role is to support your husband and to submit to his leadership when there is a disagreement about direction to take. Is this hard to do? You better believe it. Does it mean your husband has the right to run roughshod over you? In no way is that true. One of my pet peeves with these verses is when people forget to talk about verse 21, the very first verse I read, submit to one another out of reverence for Christ. The word submit is being applied to both men and women. But because men are a little denser, Paul must give actual examples of what he means for a man to submit, namely the way Christ loved the church. 
Men, your submission to your wife is to give up your preference for her, to serve her when you want nothing more than to sit down in a chair with a cool drink and watch the game. Paul's call to you is to submit to your wife through love. What men tend to do is to abdicate, give up their power and authority to their wife. In other words, she makes all the decisions, takes care of everything for the kids, pays all the bills, etc. And then when the husband begins to feel imposed upon, he rises up in anger and power and uses force to get his way. See how very different this is from God's best? God wants you as a husband to be a leader, to be involved, but to lead out of serving rather than out of power. This one idea has changed me drastically as a husband and a father. I am consistently trying to find ways to serve my wife. I am asking myself this question. What could I do right now to make her day easier? I am not perfect at it. I mess up more than I would like to admit. I can be a selfish jerk with the best of them, but I never use that as an excuse to stay in that place. Actually, I use those moments as warning signs. I am likely not spending enough time with Jesus to get my value and needs met by God, focusing on what he thinks about me. When my relationship with God is out of whack, I seek security and safety in my human relationships. Remember, human beings, they bear the image of God. So in some ways, they can give some of what God can give. And so I seek my security and safety, which are only able to give me an imperfect version of that type of love from my spouse. And I end up a grumpy, mean-spirited, selfish person. Women, wouldn't you find it easy to submit to a husband who you knew without a doubt made every decision based off of what he thought was best for you and your family? Husbands, wouldn't it be easy to serve a wife you knew was willing to submit to your ideas even when she wasn't 100% sure they were the right decision? God's way is so much better, but it requires one difficult thing. God's way requires you and me to strip our selfishness out of the equation, to stop looking for the other person to give us things we need to prop up our insecurities. Living out your marriage in this manner means that you must choose to make your relationship with God a priority, a priority because your spouse is going to hurt you. They're going to take advantage of your kindness. They're going to be a human. So you need someone who is looking out for your needs, God. Otherwise, you will take over and begin to look out for your own needs and selfishness will creep right back in. You have been blessed with your spouse. You may not see it right now, but they are a blessing because they are a way for you to learn to become someone who serves. I believe this is why God only gives a couple of reasons biblically why divorce is okay. A spouse having an affair, an abandonment by a spouse, more on this later. How could you serve your spouse today? How could you submit to them? Here's a little caveat for you. Living your life for Jesus is not a magic incantation that if you do everything right, your life turns into some fairy tale. On the other hand, living your life for Jesus will transform you and turn you into a person you never thought you could be. It will strip you of everything that currently matters and replace those things with peace, love, joy, and hope you have never known. The truth is some people start to follow Jesus and their relationships get worse because their spouse isn't following Jesus. If this is you, be strong, engage God with grit, and keep learning to serve and follow Jesus. Matthew 16, 25 says, If you try to hang on to your life, you will lose it. But if you give up your life for my sake, you will save it. 
One last thing about marriage. It's very possible that you are married to someone who is not a follower of Jesus. Serving your spouse may be one of the most difficult things you will ever do. They likely do not understand your love for God, especially if you're a new follower of Jesus. First, let me just tell you that my heart goes out to you. This is one of the most difficult positions any Christ follower finds themselves in. And I know so many who pray so hard for their spouse to find Christ and are still praying. You are a special person. God has created you to be the kind of person who can make it through this. He has given you everything you need for godliness in this situation. Lean on Christ's patience. Lean on his love. You must work hard and extra hard to find your value and self-worth and how God views you because the way you serve your spouse will likely go unnoticed or be interpreted as manipulation. Don't give up. Keep going. Surround yourself with Christians who can encourage you. Paul says in 1 Corinthians 7, 14, For the believing wife brings holiness to her marriage, and the believing husband brings holiness to his marriage. Otherwise, your children would not be holy. But now they are holy. You are the message of God in your household. Don't give up. Engage God with grit. It's worth it. As I write these words, I'm praying this prayer for you. Father, help these men and women who carry the banner of your name in their home. By their strength, I pray for a movement from you in the heart of their spouse. I pray for the courage to not nag or push too hard, but for these friends of mine to be wise in the way they invite their spouse closer home to you. Father, remind them constantly that they are your delight, that you are walking with them. Be their hope and their shelter and bring their spouse to salvation. Amen. Abusive relationships. If you are in a relationship that is abusive, please listen to me and take your children and get out. Get yourself to a safe place. Contact a good Christian counselor or pastor and get advice and help. Paul speaks in 1 Corinthians 7.15 about a spouse that leaves and abandons the family that in this case, divorce is a viable option. It is my personal interpretation, please understand this is an interpretation, that repeat abusers fall under the same category of abandonment. They have abandoned their role in their family. If you can find a way to salvage the marriage and get accountability for the abuser, great. But if not, get out and get help, please. Married, reflect on it questions. Reflect on it question one, what is hard for you about the role God has given you in your marriage? What are ways you could start praying for your spouse today? What could you do today to make your spouse's life better? Let's talk about Christian singles or non-marrieds, loneliness, dating, and more. If you're married, read this so you can teach it to your kids. As I mentioned earlier in the sixth trail, I was single for the first 27 years of my life. I felt intense loneliness during that period. I experienced the exhilaration of navigating the complex landscape of the dating world. I learned what it was to struggle through sexual temptations. I remember all too vividly what it was like to watch others living their lives together with their families and for me to go home and be hit with the overwhelming silence of an empty house. I would listen to my answering machine just to have the voice of another person in the room. This was back when people had phones with machines that recorded voicemails for them. Modern Christianity is good at caring for families. We do a good job with teens and kids. There is definitely a place for older folks. In general, though, singles tend to be a tougher crowd for the church to engage. Let me just tell you some things that helped me as a single and then give you some warnings. First, you are not less just because you do not have a spouse. I will never forget the night I was laying in my bed alone, mourning the loss of a relationship. I'd been in a relationship with this girl and thought she might be the one. 
I'd poured myself completely into that relationship, something I always struggled with. And she just was not at the same place as I was. I was agonizing over this that night. I was pouring out to God, wrenching my heart and letting the rage and pain drain out of me. I picked up the scripture. I didn't know where to turn. I didn't have any answers. I prayed to God and asked him to speak to me, to give me something. I opened to Isaiah 54 and started reading, and there it was. Nothing. (laughs) I mean, don't get me wrong. It was good, but it wasn't hitting me. I kept reading. I kept pleading with God to please speak through his word to me. And then it did hit me. I was in the 56th chapter of the prophet of Isaiah when I read these words, Isaiah 56, 3 through 5. And let no eunuch complain, I am only a dry tree. For this is what the Lord says to the eunuch who keeps my Sabbaths, who choose what pleases me and hold fast to my covenant. To them, I will give within my temple and its walls a memorial and a name better than sons and daughters. I will give them an everlasting name that will endure forever. A eunuch was a male who had been castrated. Often their job was to serve a queen. The idea was that they would not be able to impregnate the queen if they raped her. Listen to what God is saying to these men who would never have the joy of producing a family of their own. He was telling them, they are not a dry tree as they suppose. God has a memorial for them. He has a name for them. He is providing for them an inheritance, a way for them to not be forgotten ever. In that moment, I felt God ask me the question, would you be okay if it was just you and me for the rest of your life? I literally began to weep as I considered giving up my dream of being a dad and a husband. As I wept, I committed to God, if that's what it takes, I will follow you. Listen, being single is not easy, but God is not silent or ignoring you just because you feel lonely. If anything, he has a special place in his heart for you. He is going to have a hall to immortalize your name. Don't give up, but do deal with the question. Will you be okay if it's just you and Jesus for the rest of your life? I believe answering this question was one of the major turning points in my life. I believe people who got married before having to answer this question have missed out on an important part of following Jesus. They've never been tested to see if Jesus is enough, even if they don't have the other part of their image of God in their life. Just like a married person must learn to find their value, security, love, etc. from Jesus, you have the same task. Learn to let God be enough. The thing you have that the married person doesn't have is the time to do whatever the heck you want, whenever you want. You can spend your money how you want. You can go where you want. Paul talks about this in 1 Corinthians 7, 32 through 35. Listen up. I would like you to be free from concern. An unmarried man is concerned about the Lord's affairs, how he can please the Lord. But a married man is concerned about the affairs of this world, how he can please his wife and his interests are divided. An unmarried woman or virgin is concerned about the Lord's affairs. Her aim is to be devoted to the Lord in both body and spirit. But a married woman is concerned about the affairs of this world, how she can please her husband. I am saying this for your own good, not to restrict you, but that you may live in a right way in undivided devotion to the Lord. As a single, your life is free to be devoted completely to the Lord. A married individual does not have this complete freedom. They must take care of their family. So let's get practical. Let's talk about sex and the single. What does the Bible say about dating? 
Actually, the Bible says nothing about dating. That's because dating is a modern invention. What it does give is guidelines about our interactions with those of the opposite sex. One of the primary things for us to understand is how sex plays a role in the pre-marriage dating relationship. Our world has demoted sex to a simple bodily function. People have reduced it to nothing more spectacular than having a good meal. Sex feels good, they say, but it shouldn't be regulated and only prudes say that it should be. Here's the problem. This ignores how sex actually works. When men have sex, their body releases a cocktail of chemicals into their brain that creates an intense emotional connection with whatever they're visually looking at in the moment. This, by the way, is one of the reasons pornography is so very dangerous for men. Your brain is creating a connection with an image that is not real. There are men who cannot have sex without looking at porn because of this connection. Sex is obviously more than just a bodily function. It affects the way we think and feel about the person we engage with. Sex creates a connection or a bond. God addresses this in the scripture. As a matter of fact, the Bible says that sex is the moment when two flesh become one. We call this marriage. Paul, addressing sexual activity, says in 1 Corinthians 6, 16, Do you not know that he who unites himself with a prostitute is one with her in body? I know the whole prostitute thing seems to come out of nowhere, but the people of Corinth had a temple to a false god that had prostitutes in it where you could go and worship that god by sleeping with a temple prostitute. What Paul is saying is when you perform a sexual act with a prostitute, or for our purposes, any one of the opposite sex, you are uniting yourself in one flesh with that person. The Apostle Paul is intentionally using language to point back to the creation account in Genesis 2.24. Remember, that is why a man leaves his father and mother and is united to his wife and they become one flesh. Get this. In God's eyes, the thing that makes a couple married is not a judge or a pastor performing a ceremony. Instead, the thing that makes you married in God's eyes is having sexual intercourse with someone of the opposite sex. I know some of you just had your heartbeat a skip. I was a virgin before Jenny and I got married, but I know some of you have had multiple partners or maybe you're even living in, with and having sex with someone who isn't your wife or husband right now. If that's you, it may be frightening to learn that sexual intercourse is the thing that makes you married in God's eyes. It is frightening because it means something greater was happening than just a simple physical transaction. Truth be told, didn't you know that was the case though? Didn't you know something more was happening than just sex? At least the first time. Men, don't you feel a desire to tell women you love them after sex? What's that about? It's God's way of trying to connect you to your partner for life. Women, don't you want them to love you after having had sex? Don't you want them to be committed to choose you? What's that about? It's God's way of tying you together, making you one unit. People have huge emotional scarring and baggage from relationships where they have been sexually active without being married. Sex could be thought of like a fire. Fires are not good or bad. It is the context that makes them good or bad. A fire in a fireplace is wonderful. Just like sex in a marriage is wonderful. A fire outside of a fireplace, however, can cause serious devastation, burn down the whole house, just like sex outside of marriage can so easily burn you. Yeah, you may be able to warm yourself by it, but there is no controlling it.
Get this. God is not trying to be a cosmic killjoy by saying sex should happen inside a committed marriage relationship. Rather, he is trying to protect us. Okay, so I just tipped my hand. I believe scripture teaches that sex is to take place inside a committed marriage relationship. That's because in a committed relationship for life, you can trust the other person to not leave or forsake you. This is why the marriage ceremony has become the place where most American Christians believe we are married. We have placed the emphasis on the commitment and made sex the icing on the cake. The reality is the sex makes you married. The commitment keeps you married. I'm going to say that again. The reality is the sex makes you married. The commitment keeps you married. What does all this mean for you in dating? It means that no matter how you date, the key is to make a serious commitment about how you are going to remain physically pure. Not because sex is wrong, it's not, but because until you are both ready to make a lifelong commitment to one another in a way that there is no backing out, for instance, publicly before a bunch of people, then you have no business physically marrying yourself to another person. I have known some people who have put boundaries on themselves like, we will not kiss or even hold hands before our wedding day. Seem a little extreme? Maybe it is, but you must know yourself and guard yourself. I knew a man who talking about pornography said, I don't look at porn because I don't like boobs. I don't look at it because I like them too much. Knowing yourself and what you struggle with will help you safeguard yourself. You should be honest about your limitations and set up good guardrails to keep yourself safe. Trust me, the guilt and shame you will feel from dishonoring God is not worth the momentary rush of the sexual encounter. The rush will be long gone and you will still be aching from the loss of what you gave away. Now, let me just take a stab at this same issue from a purely logical way of looking at it. Most people who start to get serious these days begin to live together before getting married. The logic is, we're going to give this a dry run. If it works, great. If it doesn't, we'll figure it out. It sounds very progressive. It even sounds smart. Here's the problem. It doesn't work. The divorce rate is higher for these couples. Let me explain at least a part of why this is true. Imagine that you and your partner are two separate lines on a piece of paper. When you are dating and not living together, your lines run parallel to each other. Everything that is yours is very clearly yours, and everything that is theirs is very clearly theirs. Now imagine you two are super cute together, and you are just madly in love. You have the talk they have on TV all the time. It just doesn't make sense for us both to be paying two rents when we could just pay one and live together and see where this thing goes. You move in together and now your lines are no longer parallel. Now your lines are weaving together back and forth. There are places where you begin to consolidate. Let's sell both our washers and buy a nice one together. Or let's get a puppy together. It will be so good to see how we would be as parents together. In these big ways and a million little ways, your lives begin to intertwine. The problem though is that you haven't made a commitment to one another. What happens then when you start to think, I don't know if this is working. I'll tell you what happens. Psychologically, it is exponentially harder for you to consider untangling your life from the other person. You're not only having to consider the emotional consequences, which the parallel dating couple would also have to consider. Now you are having to think about the puppy, the washer, where you would move and a million other little things. You have already been playing married, but did not include the actual commitment of marriage. What do couples do? They make foolish choices 
and get married because they are too close to the situation to make a good, wise decision. They spend another 10 years together having kids, getting in fights, realizing they never really loved each other, and the relationship ends in divorce. Not every time, for sure, but more often than the other way. Again, notice that God's way is not about being a killjoy. God's way is about giving us the very best chances of success. Add into this equation having sexual interactions with the person you are living with and the complications just went up by another tenfold. What do you do if you are someone who has had sex outside of the marriage relationship or who is living together with someone who is not your spouse? We are about to enter some tough terrain to hike through, but I will try and give some practical advice to keep the trail clear. If you are someone who is already engaged in sexual behavior and are worried that you have made a grave mistake, let me assure you that you are not the first. What can you do? You ask Jesus for forgiveness and to provide healing for you. You get on your knees and talk to him about it. This is not a hard sin for him to bring healing and restoration to than any other sin. I have known of men who have gone back and apologized to women they convinced to have sex with them because in their journey with God, through restoration, they realized they needed to bring healing to the women they had hurt. I don't know what your path forward will look like, but I know it starts with asking for forgiveness and allowing God to forgive you. This can be more difficult than it sounds. The next step would be to begin to consider ways you will keep yourself pure for your next relationship and ultimately your future spouse. Talk openly with your new dating partner. If you struggle with wanting to be physical, make a commitment to never be alone together. Always go on double dates. Talk to a pastor and get some help. Sexual sin is a sin. It's wrong, but it's not the end. For some, it has become a beginning with God to find hope and peace and realize that they were looking for all along was not another tromp through the hay but the love and have an intimate relationship with God. If you are living together with someone you are not married to, my best advice to you, and mind you, it's hard, is to move out until you can get married to the person or decide the relationship is not worth continuing to invest in. I would advocate studying the scriptures I've provided and concluding what you believe God's view about sex is and then make some difficult decisions about how you will guard and protect your future marriage by making good decisions now. Where would I move? Ask a friend or family member or rent another apartment or house. I assume before you moved in together, you were living separate. I know it's harder now. You have likely bought things together and made some of those decisions that are linking your life together in commitment. But trust me, it is a much worse decision to make a commitment to be married for a lifetime and then have to break that commitment because your decisions were based off of poor foundation to start with. You are making a big investment now to see a huge payoff later. What if my partner doesn't understand or gets mad or worse? I'm not going to sugarcoat it. There is a strong likelihood they won't understand unless they are having the same experience with God you are, which would be a huge blessing. This is my two cents about it. If they can't honor you on this issue, then there's a strong chance they will not honor you later when you are married. This is even more of a reason to put some distance between you and slow down. Date a Christian. Maybe you haven't ever thought about this yet, but it matters who you are dating now if you are a Christ follower. One of those people will eventually be your spouse, and trust me, you will want them to share your convictions about Jesus. I know one couple for every 10 couples where the spouse became a believer later and their faith differences weren't an issue. The Bible gives 
direction about this as well. First Corinthians 739 says a woman is bound to her husband as long as he lives. But if her husband dies, she is free to marry anyone she wishes, but he must belong to the Lord. Paul is saying that if a woman loses her husband, it's okay for her to remarry, but she needs to find someone who loves God, perhaps partially because of what he says in his next letter to the Corinthians, 2 Corinthians, 2 Corinthians 6, 14, do not be yoked together with unbelievers. For what do righteousness and wickedness have in common? Or what fellowship can light have with darkness? Marriage is the most sacred commitment you can make with another person. Why would you ever want to share that with someone who doesn't love Jesus like you do? Lastly, the Apostle Paul says, 1 Corinthians 7, 8 through 9. Now to the unmarried and the widows, I say, it is good for them to stay unmarried as I do. But if they cannot control themselves, they should marry. For it is better to marry than to burn with passion. Paul's encouragement to remain unmarried was due to early Christians facing persecution, death, and torture all for their faith. He's saying it's better to not be married in this instance than to have to watch someone you love be put to death for their faith. But then in verse 9, he tells them that if they cannot control themselves, they should marry. Look, marriage is a big deal, but the secret to it is that you can't figure it all out beforehand. The key to great marriages is that you never give up. If you think you have someone great and you're burning inside to have sex, then get married and don't stop pursuing one another. Go back and reread the part about marriage in this trail. Fall in love with God and let that love be the strongest voice in all that you do. Single non-married reflect on it. Reflect on it question one. What surprises you about the way God views sex? Reflect on it question two. How do God's views of sex and marriage line up with your own views? How has your view been different? Reflect on it question three. What are ways you can guard your sexuality for your future spouse? Reflect on it question four. What are three specific things you can do right now to start implementing a lifestyle of purity in your relationships? Is there a Christ follower you could talk to to ask for help in this area?